The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. to every explosive chapter to capture for you the stark realism of people who love so deeply hate so fiercely live so recklessly Warner Brothers had to seek out vibrant new personalities tap new sources of talent create new stars James Dean as Cal the wildest boy you've ever met Julie Harris as Abra the most outspoken girl you've ever known Joe Van Fleet as Kate, the most wicked woman you've ever seen, and all the other memorable figures who form a dramatic cavalcade that moves across California's lustiest era and her most colorful locale. How come you did it? Did what? Shot my father. Because he tried to hold me. He tried to tie me down. Nobody holds me. I'm glad I know I love you. Because now I know I wasn't, I wasn't imagining it all. I was even thinking I was bad. I love you even though I'm afraid of you. Maybe someday I won't be. Your son, Aaron, he's everything that's good. Say hello to your mother, Aaron. Say hello to your
Hi guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I am your host Jimbo. Today joined once again by well, the lovable Kyle. Right love, here. Well, that's debatable, Kyle. I would say. Wow, wow! Everyone's just me of love, Jimbo. You're so heartless, right? Today uh, we're on episode ninety nine. Uh, technically, it's like I don't know, maybe two hundred now, one hundred ninety nine, something like that. Two thousand. Uh, we're we gonna be uh, go ahead and covering our second uh, James Dune. Dune. James, James Dune. Dune. That'd be James a movie I'd watch. Dune. I'd watch an action hero. Uh, <laughs> James Dean movie. Uh, uh, we covered Rebel Without a Cause, and uh, we started talking. Uh, well, this is East of Eden, if, if, if you didn't know. So mm-hmm. Kyle and I started talking a while back and uh, brought up some issues about uh, that we've never seen any James Dean movies, and uh, we want to know why he is considered to be a Hollywood icon. Yeah, so we kind of go on to so, explore what makes James Dean. Right, James so Dean. over the next couple of weeks we're doing this one, and then we're going to be doing his uh, third and final film, Giant. Giant. And then we figured we'd dive into a real talk and talk about the uh, death of James Dean and some of the surroundings and the car and stuff like that. His for life. Episode, and like right, that too, yeah. so kind of like a deep dive biography on him. See if we can't get to the bottom of James Dean. Yeah, what makes him so iconic in the world? Not you know? to be confused with Jimmy Dean, the famous yeah, sausage guy. Sausage guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Kyle, let's go and take away East of Eden. All right. East of Eden, released on March 9th, 1955, directed by Eliza Kazan. Writers um, John Steinbeck for the original novel and Paul Osborne for the screenplay adaptation. Composed by Leonard Russman. Um, cinematographer was Ted D. McCord. Um, no budget for the film this time around. Couldn't find it um, any official words this time. But the gross worldwide in 1955 was $24,000. Uh, $24,079, excuse me there. And just for inflation today, that'd be about uh, about a quarter million dollars worth of money today. So um, not a huge hit, relatively speaking, sounds like. Um, I had to get closer to box office numbers back in 1955, but it sounds like it didn't really mm-hmm. perform all that well. Of course, now I'm sure it's been making money over its lifetime that have far exceeded that. So, looking up here, um, whew, let's go back to technical details. We have a runtime of 118 minutes for um, sound mix. It's mono for our perspective sound recording and 35 millimeter optical prints, and later um, for four track stereo for 35 millimeter magnetic prints to the RCA sound recording system. Color info this is a color film by Warner Brothers Color, Warner Color. Aspect ratio, this is 2.55 by 1. That's where you really wide aspect ratio, even for films nowadays and even later. I think like Lawrence of Arabia, so like that has films like that mm-hmm. kind of aspect ratios and things like that. Yeah. Film length, um, this is a film length for film reels of 3,150 meters. This is a long, big old film. <laughs> and let's see here. We also have um, filmy dates. This was filmed between May 27th and 1954 and August 13th of 1954. So that's just uh, about almost like a, what is, that, what is that, Jimbo? That is one, two, three, three months, about three months of uh, overall mm-hmm. production status. So, you know, really long production status overall. And then we're going forward here. We have the awards, which is this film collected a whole bunch. So we're going to go through those now. Let's see here. Going first and foremost in... In 2016, it was added to the National Film Registry for the National Film Preservation Board. In 2013, it won the it was added to the Film Hall of Fame for the Online Film and Television Association. In 1959, uh, for the Cinema Writers Circle Awards in Spain, it won the Best Foreign Director. In 1958, at the Bodil Awards, it won Best American Film. Then in 1956, for the Academy Awards, it won Best Actress in a Supporting Role, awarded to Joe Van Fleet. 
Then in 1956, it also won the Blue Ribbon Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Then at the Golden Globes in 1956, it won um, Special Achievement Award for James Dean, awarded posthumously for Best Dramatic Character and Best Motion Picture. And let's see here. I think that's actually the end of the rewards right here. Unless, oh, no, I messed up a little bit there. Uh, we also have the Jussie Awards um, back in 1956. I have to look back if you ever had the Jussie Awards before. Hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, too. We have Best Foreign Actor awarded to James Dean posthumously. And then in 1956, we also have the Cinema Junpao Awards for Best Foreign Language Film. In 1956, we also have the Picture Goer Awards for Best Actor awarded to James Dean. In 1955, we have Best Dramatic Film. And finally, in 1955, it was added to the National Board of Reviews for top 10 films of that year, 1955. And that is the awards for East of Eden. Then moving on to my legacy parks, the East of Eden cast. We, of course, have James Dean playing Cal Trask, um, part of the whole series we're kind of doing here with the James Dean films. Of course, you'd also know him from films such as Rope Without a Cause in 1955 and Giant in 1956. Then we have Julia Harris playing Abra. She was in such films as The Haunting in 1963, The Member of the Wedding in 1952, and her final final film appearance was in The Lightkeepers back in 2009. Then we have Raymond Massey playing Trask. Um, He was in such films as Arsenic and Old Lace in 1943, Great movie. Abe Lincoln in Illinois in 1940, and H.G. Wells' movie Things to Come in 1936. Then we have Burl Ives playing Sam the Sheriff. He was in such films such as The Big Country in 1958, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof in 1958, and Uphill All the Way in 1986. Then we have Richard Davalos playing Aaron Trask. He was in such films such as Kelly's Heroes and Cool Hand Luke in 1967. And his last film was Ninja Cheerleaders in 2008. <laughs> it's always fun going through IMDb. Like, his last film, Ninja Cheerleaders. That's that's how they... Everyone watching the movie, it's a classic. <laughs> then we have Joe Van Fleet playing Kate. She was in films such as Cool Hand Luke in 67, I'll Cry Tomorrow in 55, and Cinderella in 1965, where I believe, uh, I can't remember what she was um, Next up we have Albert Decker playing Will Hamilton. Um, he was in such films such as The Wild Bunch in 1969, Kiss Me, Kiss Me Deadly in 1955, Dr. Cyclops in 1940, and Gentleman's Agreement in 1947. Then we have Lois Smith playing Annie. She was in such films such as Minority Report in 2002. Great movie. Lady Bird in 2017. The Nice Guys in 2016. And Twister in 1996. She's been in a whole lot of films. Uh, Lois Smith is awesome. Love her to death. Then we have Harold Gordon, finally. who's playing Gustav Albrecht. He was in such films such as Viva Zapata in 1952. The Iron Mitress, also in 1952. And Space Patrol in 1954. Hmm. And that is a brief cast of The East of Eden in 1985. All right, Kyle, give us a quick synopsis of East of Eden. Oh, gosh. Um, Two brothers um, are trying to um, uh, attain their father's love and admiration. And they both go about doing it in uh, different ways. And uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to butcher this entirely. And uh, eventually they um, uh, terrible things ensue in trying to take those actions. And uh, it's all about those kind of Right. Yeah. I, I guess I guess the more easier way I would say is um, I Thank guess you. James Dean is a younger brother. Yeah. And um, I'll talk about it in a minute. But... Their father is basically raising them on their own. They've been told that their mother was 
dead. Dead, a saintly woman right. went to heaven. Yep. Um, so the father's trying to do the best they can, and he's much harder on the younger boy, which is played by James Dean Cow, mm-hmm. than he is on his older brother, and I can't think of his name. Aaron. Aaron. Yeah, Aaron. And um, he's, you know, all Cal wants is he wants affection from his father throughout the whole entire movie. Most of the movie is just him trying to please his father to, you know, make sure that his father knows that he loves him, but he wants to be loved in return, I guess. Yeah. Want that kind of love to be reciprocated and also something like that. And it's clear that, like, Aaron is kind of like the apple of his father's eye in many right. ways. Like, and can, can kind of do no wrong in many respects. And he is a good man on his own right um, throughout most of the film. Um, so so yeah. when I when I told Kyle we're going to go ahead and do this movie, I had started watching it. And I'm telling you, the first probably 10 or 20 minutes of this movie, you are like, what am I watching? James Dean's character is basically stalking this lady. And I'm like, this is not going to be a good movie. This is going to go downhill fast. And mm-hmm. uh, but boy, oh boy, does it take a turn and and for the better. Uh, it's actually a very good movie. Um, but just beware if you're going to watch this. The first probably I'd say ten to fifteen minutes is a little rough, and you have no idea what's really going on. <laughs> going to happen. Yeah, I, I think it might be like. Like, despite how good I think this overall film is, it probably is, like, one of the worst ways to ever start a film ever. <laughs> it is pretty bad. Because <laughs> it really is just, like... Because I was like, I was like, uh, man, I can't believe I suggest we do all the James Dean movies. And this <laughs> is, I was like, oh, man. So, but I'm glad I stuck with it because it, I, I actually do enjoy this better than Rebel Without a Cause. And I think the storyline is stronger than with, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. So, um, let's go and jump in and talk about some of the uh, important fun stuff Facts. that happens in the All cool stuff. Facts. Yeah. Facts. Um, so there's a scene where Adam refuses to accept Cal's money. Um, the script called for a Cal to turn away in anger from his father. It was actually James Dean's instinct to embrace him instead. This came as a surprise to Raymond Massey, who could think of nothing to say but Cal, Cal, in response. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was his father's birthday. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's trying to do something for his father because his father had just went into uh, basically given his whole life savings. For what was it, lettuce? Uh, beans. No, the lettuce that they thought. Oh, the trade. lettuce they messed up. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, he's like, yeah, it'll work as long as we keep it refrigerated, you know. But they ended up losing the whole crop or whatever. Yeah, thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of right. lettuce. Basically. So Cal wanted to win back all the money that his dad had lost and give it to him for his birthday present, and he's really excited about it. And um, yeah, he, he goes to give it to his dad, and says, "Cal, I don't want your money," you know, and he just kind of berates him again. Yeah. Uh, but well, he sees it as war profiteering and immoral money. You know? But he actually had, he's actually done, uh, did the work. You know, he he went yeah. and, you know, he he wanted to borrow some money for a plot of land and actually raise, I think, beans. And they bought them at a uh, bought them at a low price and sold them at a high price. So he made a nice little profit. Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, they bought it. They bought it for a low price and they sold it the price during the war time, right. World War One, and they sold it for a high price. So that's why his father rejected the money because he saw it as war profiteering in his own way. And at this time, you see uh, Aaron and his brother come in and, because um, oh, what's the, what's his girlfriend's name? Uh, Aunt, Kate. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this this whole is it's a whole interesting scenario where. Kate and uh, the two brothers are kind of like in a love triangle, I guess. Uh, you don't... Yeah. It's hard to ex- describe um, because there's a special scene where they're on a Ferris wheel and they're trying to wait for Aaron to get there and uh, Cal and her are up on the Ferris wheel and um, I think they actually... Do they kiss up there? 
I don't know if they actually kiss, but it, but it is clear that they have a Connection. not a love, yeah, a mutual affection for each other that goes deeper than just kind of a friendship yeah. that he has. And like he cares about his brother too. He doesn't want to take his 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 his, his fiance away from him. But it's clear they do share some kind of emotional bond that they wish was deeper. They wish they could go further pursue their relationship themselves, right? Um, even if they recognize that's kind of like an unhealthy thing to do. Right. So at this birthday party, you know, she has helped uh, Cal, you know, decorate and everything. He's really excited for it. And uh, when he gives him the money, he gets rejected. Uh, Aaron says, um, "Oh yeah, well our gift is uh, we're getting engaged. You know, we're engaged." And mm-hmm. she's like, "What?" <laughs> you know? yeah. And this this really just destroys James Dean's character, and he just takes off running. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Kate goes on to trying, like, runs out and tries to comfort him. Yeah, and, and that um, drives Aaron to a uh, huge amount of anger, and they have a huge fight and all kinds of things. Yeah, too. this is where uh, Cal says, "Hey, uh, you know, you've been told your mom's dead." He's like, but what if I told you she wasn't? And uh, because at the beginning of the movie, you find out that the woman that he was tracking is actually their mother. And she's actually live uh, in a town over, you know, just east of Eden, yeah. if you will. Where she actually owns a successful property. Yeah, she you know, is, is uh, rich. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He, he actually follows her to the bank, you know, and then he follows her from the bank back to the other side of town. And, you know, you see him hitching a ride on, like, top of a train to get back to his town and all that. So... Basically, the people from this part of town don't associate with people from the other part of town. It's very clear in this movie. Um, so there's a lot of uh, sibling rivalry going on in here, a lot of uh, love story going on in here. And I, you really need to watch this movie because it's very good. So <sighs> something else. Um, in order to feel as uncomfortable as possible in the, in the Ferris wheel scene, which we talked about, James Dean refused to urinate for the entire day. Until the sequence was completed. He also refused to play a scene with Julie Harris on a pitched roof. Eliak has overcame his reluctance by getting the actor drunk. So oh, wow. he had to actually get James Dean drunk for him to go up on that roof scene where he sneaks up into her window or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time of this film's release, many critics were quite unimpressed with James Dean acting. The most frequent complaint was that he imitated the acting style of Marlon Brando. Uh, the New York Times and Variety were particularly harsh in the reviews and dismissed Dean as a cheap copy of Brando. <sighs> I can see why, for the time, you'd make that comparison, um, especially considering like how much Marlon Brando and like James Dean kind of like had relations together in real life um, to make those kind of fair. But it was unfair to now that he took a lot of himself into that role specifically. It wasn't just like copy paste job, right? Right. Like, after it wasn't true, but I understand how. After watching a lot of Brando's works, you can tell. Yeah, Brando was clearly an influence on James Dean in terms of acting career, but like, not, but like, you know, like uh, how much an influence he had for having only three movies, but still it was an influence in somewhere else. So I understand how you can see it as a copy, but it's more like it informed how James Dean made his own characters. It's right. not him copying, you know. Um, instead of using rear projection process shots for the scene of the Ferris wheel, Elijah Kazan rented a real one from a carnival and set it up on the Warner Brothers backlot and borrowed an additional crane, one used by Disney on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1954. To hoist lights, sound equipment, and crew members up to capture the intimate romantic scene. I do believe they kiss here because I'm sure they do. Yeah, yeah, because this is where uh, he goes over. Remember, he's like leaning over to the side, like I can't believe I just done that. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh, that's right. Yeah, has the immediate kind of like regret or something like that. Right. Yeah, the, he- the hesitation, if you will. Um, this is uh, the only one of the big three films to be released before James Dean's death, and the only one he personally viewed in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Gotta say, I'm happy for that. Having not watched a giant yet, it could be a better film. But overall, this is a, a film that I think is superior to Rebel Without a Cause. So mm-hmm. I'm happy he got to see this one before he passed away. 
Uh, when they first arrived in Los Angeles to begin production, Elia Kazan accompanied James Dean to visit his estranged father, who was living there at the time. He witnessed firsthand how badly the father treated Dean and how much the boy wanted to please him. As he got to know Dean better, Kazan saw that how this relationship had instilled in him a great deal of anger because of the frustrated love, uh, the key to the character of Cal. And quote, it was the most apt piece of casting I've ever done in my life. So the uh, the character that Dean is playing is actually uh, kind of based upon his real life relationship he had with his father. It's true. It's true. Yeah, that that seems to be kind of like the case of uh, when we get further into that in the real talk, especially. But it seems like uh, you know a lot of cases like you you can get a good, well trained actor to do a role, or you can get someone who's actually living through that reality. Um, and James Dean, they kind of got both here. And East Eden, he was a good actor on his own, but also clearly had a. Um, a lot of struggles in his mm-hmm. life story, and it informed his uh, his part here. And it, it, all better for the film, all worse, unfortunately, for his um, short life. But uh, still, right. but, you know. uh, many cast and the crew members, including the director, uh, remarked that James Dean was frequently unprepared on set and didn't know his lines. Dean would deviate considerably from the script in many takes, some of which were emotionally charged and ultimately used in the final cut of the film. Uh, Raymond Massey was uh, incensed by what he considered to be Dean's lack of professionalism and grew to despise the actor during the making of this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a twofold thing, too. They're like, if he's bringing his own lines to it, emotionally charged, and that can enhance the film, too. And they actually make um, it into the movie. And actually make it into the movie. So it's clearly that he was making the right call on some of the times, but also I could see getting frustrated with that, too. But it's also like from a film production standpoint, like if you're writing the tight script you need for a character like James, for an actor like James Dean, then he doesn't need to change the line to make it feel like it's better. You know, if you already have a good script, then like actors won't have to change as much. But in this one, like he is doing his own work to try and elevate the film. And I think he succeeded in many respects. Right. Uh, James Dean refused to attend the premiere party, which almost cost him the lead in Rebel Without a Cause. That's a weird thing for him to do, but yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, Timothy Carey, who had a small part as Joe the Bouncer, drove director Elias or Elia Kazan to such distraction with his such bizarre behavior that Kazan, a longtime avowed pacifist, physically attacked him the only time he had ever done such a thing. Oh, wow. That's. Okay. <laughs> Especially oh. you're taking on a bouncer. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess he played the bouncer. Um, still. <laughs> yeah. James Dean's wild behavior and late night uh, carousing worried uh, Kazan. At first, he arranged for Dean to share an apartment with Richard Davlos. When that didn't work out, Kazan put him up in a dressing room on the Warner Brothers lot and moved into the adjoining room to keep an eye on the star. <laughs> wow, talk about babysitting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard Davlos said the most difficult scene for him uh, was when James Dean, as Cal, hit him uh, after an argument. It didn't, he didn't really hit him, of course, but the emotion felt so real, Davlos believed Dean really did hate him. He left the set when the scene was complete and cried for about four hours until Julie Harris came and calmed him down. Aw, that's, that's rough. <laughs> <Her disabilities. laughs> this one uh, kind of bled up into real life a little too much, so it feels like. James Dean hated being in makeup. Uh, he, he just hated it. And according to Davlos, they would run into the bathroom at various intervals to rub off a little makeup at a time. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, I don't think uh, we had any makeup on at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> and like Kyle, who likes to wear makeup all the time. Oh, yeah. yeah good. Uh, on the last day of shooting, Julie Harris went to James Dean's trailer to say goodbye because she was not sure she would be attending the wrap-up party. She found James Dean crying because the production was over. It was so moving. It was his first picture. It meant so much, and now it was over. 
Um, Elia uh, Kazan strove to achieve dramatic effects with color, particularly by emphasizing green throughout. Uh, he later claimed to have innovated the use of the widescreen by placing objects in the foreground, film, past, or through. Which, if you watch this movie, it's beautifully shot, especially the scene with the train mm. when it's leaving, you know, and they, they load it up, and then you can see just going past him and going up that mountain it, or whatever. It feels like it's almost like shot almost like a little bit like a western where it has like the big emptiness, right. you know, that, that kind of feeling of just like you're a small man in this world. It makes you feel tiny and insignificant in a really interesting way, and it really adds to the story, I think. So. And I thought that was a pretty interesting scene where his dad, uh, they're over there learning, he's getting ready to buy a brand new car because he had just, uh, you know, shipped off all his lettuce or whatever, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, very, yeah. very interesting. But it might be too much to say he pioneered the idea because I think a lot of Westerns were doing the same thing at the time. But also, right. yeah, I agree. Like he did it well for that movie. <laughs> uh, Joe Van Fleet was only thirty-eight years old when she played the mother. <laughs> to a mid, to, to a guy in his mid twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, she was. Oh she my god, she looked pretty old. Though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she um, did. She sold it well. Before shooting began, Elia Kazan sent James Dean off to Palm Springs, California. To gain some weight and get some sun so he looked like a real farm boy. Dean hated getting a tan, having his hair cut, and drinking a pint of ice cream a day to put on pounds. <laughs> sounds like the good life to me. James Dean just sounds so high maintenance. I'd be so annoyed. <laughs> uh, in the original take of the roof scene, James Dean crawled through the window into Julie Harris's bedroom where he crouches beside her while she sleeps, uh, fondling her slipper like a fetish. <laughs> <laughs> that part that was cut from the film, uh, as it was another highly, you know, eroticized scene between the two brothers in the room. Mm-hmm. But wow, uh, it was James Dean ideal to do the little running dance in the bean field, which is funny because he's wanting him to grow. He's like, grow, grow. You know, he's like <laughs> yeah. down there talking to. Uh, and Elijah Kazan said he actually uh, said that he kissed him for the valuable contribution. Uh, he also noted that um, the far more contained Marlon Brando would never have been able to do a scene like that. But Dean was actually like a little kid out there. And I liked how he, how they, you know, that's just one of the instances where he brought something to the scene and it made it in the movie and the director a, loved it. A youthful presence, yeah. Right. Elia Kazan had to coordinate the filming of the Beanfield scene with a local farmer so that the crops would be exactly three inches high when the shoot began. Then the sprouts, in reality mustard plants, had to be replanted every five minutes since they would wilt and discolor under the lights. Oh, man, that's a every lot. five minutes. How many? How many had to go through to get that done? I don't know. No and how many takes? I yeah. mean, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you get one take for like five minutes, and then you have to do another hour of replanting seats for that. Oh five yeah, terrible. Every time. Oh, miserable day. Miserable. Uh, day, I'm sure. The conflict between James Dean and Raymond Massey came to a boiling point in the scene where Cal angers his father because of the way he reads from the Bible. Kazan, who found Massey to be a rather rigid and unemotional stiff off screen and on. Wasn't happy with the way it was going, so he took Dean aside and whispered some suggestions. Dean came back and read the Old Testament passages interlaced with the most offensive curses and crude sexual expressions. The very religious Massey became incensed, storming off the set and threatening to call his lawyers. But before the outburst, Kazan was able to capture the heightened anger he was going for. Wow. Wow, I mean... Oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I went that far, but... um, For the premiere at New York's Astor Theater, it was a big, long party... With long lines. Uh, the celebrity ushers on hand, including uh, Margaret Truman, Arlene Francis, Jane Meadows, Major, uh, Marjorie Steele, which is uh, Mrs. Huntington Harford, uh, Roberta uh, Gottlieb, and also, uh, no, no, sorry, uh, Carol Channing, Eva Marie St. And yes, Marilyn Monroe was an usher. I think that's pretty weird. Um, while they were there, um, 
He was trying to get Marilyn Monroe to sing Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which he had wrote for, uh, uh, or Time is Our Girl's Best Friend, which he had wrote for Gentlemen Preferred Blonde. Um, but he actually had to have Julie Stein do it. Um, because hmm. Gottlieb had failed to attempt to persuade Moreau to reprise her uh, singing for that. Yeah. Uh, also, composer Harold Arlen performed a piano medley, a song opposed for the occasion. Uh, authors Howard Ditz and Arthur Schwartz, and last but hardly not least, yes, a young and still very unknown, little, little known, Sammy Davis Jr., less than four months after the near-fatal auto accident which had cost him his left eye, and more than one year before he'd make his official Broadway debut in Mr. Wonderful, was here making his way in the Big Apple downtown and bringing down the house in the process. So right there, you know, it's a star-studded event yeah. for the premiere. A small world kind of thing where like everyone everyone of note was there. Right. Yeah. Uh, shooting only lasted 10 weeks. Um, Kazan was proud of his use of CinemaScope to get what he thought was the best shot in the film, the train pulling away, which I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. In this carefully calibrated shot, the drain disappears behind the railroad station then reappears much smaller, going off towards the distant mountains. It's a perfect shot because it shows that their hope is going off, he said. It's sentimental and still emotional. Kazan also liked the shot of Cal and Abra uh, after his father's rejection, standing behind the willow tree, audible but with only their feet showing where they're talking. Do you remember that? Where yeah. That's mm-hmm. when their brother walks up. Mm-hmm. It's a good scene. It's a really yep. good scene. Yeah. Uh, the film's interiors were all filmed on studio soundstage at the Warner Brothers Burbank studio lot. During onset filming, portable star dressing rooms were parked adjacent to exterior walls of the sound stages near the stage's crew cast an entry door, positioned on a studio alley and or in uh, the street between the studio sound stages. James Dean, assigned one of these dressing rooms, actually lived day and night in the assigned dressing room trailer during the filming of this movie. When studio boss Jack L. Warner uh, heard that Dean w- refused to move out of his trailer when the studio wanted to relocate the dressing room trailer to another location, Warner shouted, uh, That little explicitive better get out of that trailer or else. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if they really wanted to relocate, it might have probably been a nicer place. Yeah, they did. Yeah. But... Uh, James Dean and Paul Newman were filmed together in the crude scene uh, test scene in New York that still exists, according to the Dean biographer. David Dalton and the Mutant King uh, in 1974. In the screen test, Newman is quite cool and stares straight ahead while Dean is more animated and is flipping something up and down and in and out of his hand like a George Raft and his nickel in the movie Scarface from 1932. Hmm. When James Dean is asked what the object is, he admits that it's a switchblade, the premier symbol of the juvenile delinquent menace much feared in the 1950s. In an excerpt of the test now available on the internet, there is no evidence of Dean playing with a knife. Newman's future wife, Joanne Woodward, read for the part of Abra. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, apparently, actually, it's still online now today, the um, James Ian Paul Newman screen test. Look really? at it right now. Yeah, so you can watch that sometime. Cool. You, can, you can put one What's YouTube. on the old YouTube? The old, the, the old YouTube. The old tube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for some uh, reason, uh, uh, for some, uh, James Dean proved to be rather a lot of a deal uh, with daring for production. Uh, there were times when the actor refused to emerge from his dressing room or talk to anyone. The only way Dean was remotely receptive was if uh, the film was being discussed. So, I guess being his first film, he just wanted to try to, you know, stay in character and try to, you know, yeah. take it all in. Mm-hmm. For better and for worse. <laughs> right. Uh, Kazan felt that Tim- Timothy Carey's Brooklyn accent was wrong for the part of Joe, so Albert Decker actually dubbed all of Carey's scenes. Hey, you're <laughs> starting in this movie. Oh, but we don't we, like we your voice. We don't like your voice at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, Joe Van Fleet's Oscar-winning performance is her only Academy Award nomination. 
Uh, when James Dean found out who Julie Harris was playing in the film, he asked the actress in person if she was a bit too old for her character. Harris admitted many years later in an interview how she struggled to maintain control at such a question. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, this is actually uh, one of Nicolas Cage's favorite movies. In 2014, uh, Cage admitted he went into acting because he wanted to be James Dean. Which he kind of has the hair for it, you know. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. Although it's falling out now. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, I love Nick Cage. Oh, God. God. All right. Can't uh, never enough Nick Cage. Right. The story uh, basically is an allegory of Cain and Abel in the Bible, with the names Aaron and Caleb being an allusion to the original names. Additionally, Monterey and Salinas is a metaphor for the Garden of Eden and the sinful land outside, and Cade is a metaphor for Eve, who rejected the life of purity by eating the apple. I was going to say Kate's the rock. <laughs> the rock. The story. Uh, um, Timothy Carey, who played Joe, the bouncer at Kate's brothel, later played uh, a preacher in the East of Eden in 1981. So I guess this is a remake. Or the remake later. Uh, the original, yeah. For unknown reasons, Timothy Carey's voice was dubbed by the actor. They still don't know why he... Insisted on doing that because it's yeah. unneeded, but it's weird. The average shot length, the ASL, is 10 seconds, which is pretty interesting. Uh, although widely regarded as a 1955 film because of its March 55th premiere and April 1955 release date and copyright date, the production took place between May and August of 1954. So it was in the can more than six months before being publicly exhibited and actually bears a 1954, for those of you that like the Roman numerals, that would be MC, ML, IV. Uh, copyright statement during the opening credits cool right so kyle overall thoughts what, what do you think about this east of eden yeah yeah well i kind of like we kind of like you know we said it earlier but it's like i do i do i did enjoy this film a lot more than i enjoyed rebel without a cause not that rebel without a cause is bad this is just film is just overall like more watchable in my mind i can sit down and watch east of eden kind of anytime and enjoy it so i think this is an excellent film um of the james new movie saw so far it's obviously my favorite <laughs> and i look forward to seeing giant next week um but uh yeah overall i think this is a excellent film the biblical allegories are really good the cinematography is top notch especially for the era and so that's really impressive on its own right and uh, i think it's worth watching for anyone to watch um it does deal with a lot of like heavier themes i think this probably isn't like a necessarily a movie uh kid would understand or enjoy to any degree, but for a young adult like that, it could be really good film to watch. So um, I enjoyed the film overall. Jimbo, how do your overall thoughts? Well, yeah. I think I think this film actually shows James Dean's range in acting, um, and, and and I and I talked to uh, Kyle earlier uh, earlier last week. I think it was when we, after he watched it, and I said, Kyle, do you think James Dean had some sort of uh, playing a uh, like a mental? Uh, Mm-hmm. A mental situation in this because at the beginning of the movie he's he's very I don't know if he's like would you say ADHD or uh, ADD or um, it's, he's very some degree of a spectrum of mental illness of autism degree, maybe yeah. I don't know because yeah. he's like uh, he's always like if you watch the movie you'll know what I'm trying to say it's hard to put into words yeah. but he's very. Has like odd social antisocial behaviors right. that associate with people that like are like there's a scene where his like dad's that. got like this ice thing going and he's like throwing ice you know, I thought in that scene that he was gonna drop one of the ice things on his brother mm-hmm. and kill him at that scene. Yeah. And then he's out there and he just turns on the machine and it's just flying everywhere and his dad berates him, you know. And you know, he's trying to please his dad, you know, you see him he comes up with the idea. He actually steals the coal, the coal miners thing, and there's something to slide the lettuce down. And his yeah. dad was really impressed with, "Hey, how'd you come up with that?" And he's like, "Oh, I just thought of it, Dad." 
And then here comes the the coal people or whatever, and they say, "Hey, uh, have you seen our chute? <laughs> Somebody stole yeah. our chute." So he had actually stole the chute from up the road. Um, but the struggles that you see him go as an actor from you know finding his mom. He didn't understand why his mom left him. You know the whole thing. I think you see him searching for his mom. Wanting the love of his father. So now he doesn't have the love of his mother or his father, which he actually asked for a loan from his mom, which I thought was really interesting. Um, it's just a very powerful movie, and the way he acted in this movie is is just really good. I, I can't say enough about it. Um, when it started, I was like, I'm really going to hate this film. <laughs> I, I yeah, really yeah, yeah. thought I was going to hate this film. Mm-hmm. But the plot is so... So... It comes back to get. It comes back yes, into itself. It's, you know, yeah. even though it may seem discombobulated while you're watching it, by the time the end of the movie, Cal finds what he was looking for. Mm. And I keep thinking say Kyle every time you say Cal. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. And Kyle did this, but, but, but you know it has a pretty powerful scene at the end where uh, Cal finally gets the love of his father. His dad had a stroke, and um, you know he's in there, and the nurse is kind of. She's badgering and keeps yeah. talking, won't shut up. And, and he's he like, says, Get out. The, Yeah, yeah. And so uh, his girlfriend at the time, I guess she would be his girlfriend now, she goes in there and talks to him. And Cal, she's like, Look, if there's anything you want to say, she's like, Now, you know, you need to go in there and tell him, you know, tell him what you want to hear, tell him what, what you need to hear. And this is where his dad hasn't said anything. And Cal, he asks Cal to lean in and he whispers something to him. And he whispers to get rid of the nurse, get rid of the nurse out of the room, all kind of stuff. Too. Yeah. yeah, and then and he asks him to stay, to stay, stay, stay with him. So he pulls up a chair and he sits right there next to his bed. And mm-hmm. it's such a powerful scene. You know, you get a little emotional when you actually watch a film like this um, because it's like hitting on all your emotions. You know what I mean? Everything yeah. you actually feel what James Dean was going through in this movie. You know, the all mm-hmm. the emotional things, and you start thinking about, okay, my my mom left me. Uh, I'm basically still in Cal's fiance you know my brother hates me now yeah um you know uh yeah. and there's the scene where we didn't even touch on this that it's going during the war and uh, basically there's a german in town who's friends with everybody in the town but because of the war they go and just destroy his pull up all of his flowers his fence and everything at the fair you know and call him like a dirty german and all that you know what i mean and then actually cows over there trying to you know yeah break him up because they're friends yeah um, so you see that, and then you see the whole issue with his dad. I just think it is a very well done movie, and I think everybody should see it at least once. Um, I, I, you know, we do this podcast, and there's movies you come along uh, every once in a while that you're just impressed with, and I think this is one of those hidden gems that you are suddenly. Uh, impressed with, um, and it, yeah. you won't forget it once you watch it. And it's a movie. I feel like I'm I'm, I'm only going to grow my fondness for it. I feel like I'm only going to like it more the more I see it, see right. it, the more I think about it, the more I think about it, the more I like it. Right. And, and that's a, that's a that's a really a, that's a hallmark of a truly great film. Um, Roll without a cause. Me, I'll come back to that too. But I haven't had that moment again, even the past couple weeks even. Um, so I hope to see it here with. Uh, I know here it needs to be. Like I'm going to like this film more and more and more. I think about it because there's there's so many things that were done just right Mm -hmm. you know yes right from the cinematography to the the cast to the acting and everything it is fantastic well um if you haven't got your tickets yet uh july 16th here in indianapolis we will be having a live show with jerry and tracy from the fabulous hillbilly horror stories as well as todd and sean and nate from middle-aged and creeped out podcast um, better get your tickets soon. Uh, me and Kyle have some fun things planned for the live show that 
you won't see anywhere else. Yeah, it'll be a great time. We'll love to have you, and it's going to be awesome. So yeah, and, and, and just come support because Kyle gets stage fright, and he's not going to do well in crowds, and I'm just going to love it. He's just going to be up there exactly. like throws, just shaking like fright. a leaf or something like that. would be great. <laughs> I'm, my, I'm going to self-combust. I'm going to have to light a fire. Worry, Kyle. I'll have great. some snacks there it's, for you to keep you with. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> be like, E.T., oh, Reese P.C. Give me a bright, shiny ball to stare at the whole time. No, but we plan on having a good time, so... Uh, we got some stuff ordered and some stuff that we've planned ahead, and I think it's going to be a really fun time. Um, if you want to follow us on the Tragedy of Cinema podcast Facebook page, we have a lot of fun on there, too. Um, Kyle Feld and his uh, TikTok exactly. video. Uh, I had one thing to do, and I didn't do it. <laughs> uh, no, you had more than one thing to do, but we won't talk about the other thing because <laughs> I give stuff away. So, Kyle, uh, next week. We are doing... No. What? Next week, oh, we'll get, have TikTok get, up. Get those things done. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and next week, we are talking about probably one of the funniest movies that I personally enjoy. Uh, just because I'm a big Universal Monsters fan. Mm-hmm. And when you combine Universal Monsters and Mel Brooks, you just get pure comedy gold. gold. Yes. Um, and it is one of my favorite movies, probably in my top ten. Just because, you know, I was sitting here watching it the other day. And I am just cracking up hilariously. Uh we have dove into some pretty deep movies lately with Schindler's List, you know, Rebel Without a Cause, and now this one. That before we jump into the next James Z movie, I told Kyle, man, we need a break just to sit down and just goof off. Watch with, me, that's just pure with, fun. Yeah. It's pure fun. So we decided on Young Frankenstein, which is also our, be titled our 100th episode. So I figured that's a statement that could be made too. So love Gene Wilder, love Mel Brooks. So there's that. Yeah, excellent. Well, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. <laughs>